Hey friends, welcome to The Ruins, a podcast about the journey of faith. My name is Joseph, and in today's episode, I am joined by Nick LaPara and talking with him about how and why he left evangelicalism. We'll also talk about his podcast, Let's Give a Damn, Calvinist Theology, Living in New York City, and what it looks like for all of us to be damn givers who care about seeing the world become a better place. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Welcome back, friends. It is so great to be with you today. I know we haven't been releasing as many episodes as we usually do, for which I am so sorry. I'm so grateful for your patience as Nicole and I continue to figure out what life in a pandemic looks like and building out these little blocks of time for the podcast in this new season of our life hasn't been easy and hasn't gone exactly how we'd like. But that said, we do have some amazing things planned for this year. We're really excited for the journey that we all get to go on together. So thanks for tuning in today. We are in for an amazing conversation because we have the incredible privilege of talking with someone that I've been following on social media for years and finally built up enough courage to send a DM and ask for an opportunity to chat. Nick is someone that I look up to and respect and have so much admiration for, and I'm so grateful that our schedules finally overlapped and we get a chance to talk. So Nick, thank you so much for being with us today. It is my honor, my pleasure. Thank you for sliding into my DMs. Um, Happy, happy to do it. (laughs) Yes. Well, I know we are still living through a global pandemic and life looks different from each day to the next. Uh, So for those who don't know you, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about who you are and give us a sense of what it means to be Nick in this season of your life. Yeah. So I'll just do present day. I'm sure we'll get into the other parts of the story. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the last couple of years have been like for most people listening right now, or no, actually all people, if you're a human over the last couple of years, your life has been yes. uh, somewhat too dramatically you know, affected by this global pandemic, which by the way, friends, is still going on. Just FYI. It is. Um, for, for those <laughs> that want to fly at 35,000 feet in the air uh, with a couple hundred strangers and not wear them, that just doesn't make any sense right now, y'all. Like, nope. Uh, and just and 40% of the people that died in January and February were fully vaccinated. So I'm not telling you what to do, yes. but just be careful. Still live carefully. It's yep. my recommendation. Yep. Anyway, the last couple of years. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we were still living in Nashville. We were not happy in Nashville. We lived in Nashville for four years. Weren't happy there the entire four years. The reasons for moving there to be closer to family for a while. And... We were actually supposed to move to New York City, where we live now, uh, that May. So as soon as the school year was over, we were going to move, uh, you know, during the summer and get ready for the new school year and be here. And then, uh, you know, lockdown happened. And obviously, as most people know, New York City was the hub of just horrific, you know, sickness and death for quite some time. So coming here was virtually impossible and just not wise in any way. So we postponed it. And um, spent another year in Nashville, and that was fine. I mean, it was it was definitely difficult. I I, I don't know about you, Joseph. Uh, we have, as far as we know, we have gone through this pandemic so far, and none of us have gotten COVID. 
um, which which mm. apparently at this point that is, is rare is quite the feat, especially with like three kids in yes. school. And we haven't been like, I mean, some would say some would look at what we've done and say that we've been militant about how we've gone through this pandemic. I just think we've been wise. Uh, th- that's all I, I yep. think. I think we have put our, you know, our our neighbors first and, you know, our needs and others needs, you know, above all. And, you know, try to do the right thing. And so we've gone this whole two years, even in Tennessee, when we live in Tennessee, which most people throughout the entire pandemic did not, they didn't give a shit. They just didn't care. They just didn't care. I mean, there was never a pandemic in Nashville for so many people. No. Um, Yes. So, yeah, made it through that. And then we, yeah, then we made this bold move of moving in May. We're coming up on a year in May of 2021 to New York City and it's been amazing. It's been hard, um, you know, moving here. A lot of people were like, why would you do that? Well, a lot of people say about New York City, just in general, why would you move your family there? I have a thousand reasons why. Yeah, This is the greatest city in the world. Yeah. Um, but yep. then like on top of that, like why would you move it during, you know, in, in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, this doesn't make any sense. And, but it's been an incredible year. It's been really hard and really good and lots of stuff that I'll probably bring up as we go ahead as we go through this conversation talk a lot of things have happened in our family this year that have made it substantially more difficult things that are not that have nothing to do mm. with new york city or moving here but just things that have happened in our extended families man it's been been a hell of a couple of years but we are we are yeah. here we are healthy and we are going. we are we are strong and we are going at it day at a time here in new york city just loving being here and um yeah, that's a little bit of the present day, how we're doing. And and then just with like, and we'll get into the work stuff, stuff that I do for a living. Like everything I do for a living has in some ways been harder to do from here, but in most ways has accelerated, like just pedal to the metal. So much wow. has happened. And so right yep. now I have more to do than I've ever had. Um, none of these things that are actually working really well pay me any money. So it's, it's, it's this, this constant struggle of trying to do things that I might not enjoy as much, but that make money, you know, consulting, doing other things while yes. I have more than full-time work over here and it's, it's, it's turning into something, it's becoming something, but it's not quite at the point where it can, it can be a thing living yes. on its own. Totally. And so, which is kind of the dream to be able to like, do the things you love and that give you so much value and you're like, wake up just so excited to get into it. And you're like, yo, is this like making me money? Yeah, That's like the dream. Yeah. That is absolutely the I dream. I mean, I'm glad you agree. I think so. People have called me absolutely, they've called me all sorts of things for not just bringing my family to the most expensive city in the US, but also like, you know, I'm to be transparent, you know, and we'll get into the story. Uh, six years ago, I became self-employed and I left my, my entire career in the nonprofit space. And for six years, I have spent more money than I've made every single year because I've just been starting all of these things and all of these things require money. I mean, both financial equity and sweat equity and a whole bunch of everything. And yet we're still here. And so it's kind of a miracle and I don't even know how it's happened but we're still here and we're still kicking and we're still making it. And so, yeah, a a thousand percent. That is the dream. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade this for 
anything. I've had friends tell me, no, like, how is your wife still even like my wife would have left me years ago had I had I yep. jumped into the stuff that you're doing. And yet she's like more on board than ever before. And we're just like doing it, man. So <laughs> it really yeah. is the dream. That's it. It's just you wake up every day and you realize like, all right, another day. None of us are our family can eat and we got a place to live and we're putting it down and trying to make our dreams happen. And I think also not willing to compromise. That's another like huge aspect that I think people miss in kind of this space in this world is it'd be so easy to sell out and just go back into spaces that you can just clock in, do your thing, clock out, not agree with anything, but really to have that like cultural value of, no, I really actually believe in what I'm doing. I'm not willing to settle or compromise for the sake of capitalism or, you know, supremacy culture or some evangelical version of whatever I could be doing that would make me enough money to live really comfortably that's not actually a value that either of us have. So even, I mean, just hearing your story, man, that's inspiring. Yeah, people just got to stop being so fancy, right? Like it's, I, I find so many people that have this thing that they want to do, whatever. It could be just a side project. It doesn't even have to be like their full-time job or anything. They have this side project, this thing that they want to do, and they they will not do what it takes to get that thing done. And that to me is just so wild because it's all virtually everything that we want to do is possible. We're not privy to the information around when it'll happen, right? You know, uh, or if it will even happen. We're not promised that. Like I said, virtually everything that we, you know, want to make or do, we could we could we could figure it out. Like especially in 2022 with all the resources and all the everything and I understand that what I just said could come across as very privileged and it probably is, but I come from poor immigrant families, so you know, I, I, I can say that a little bit, you know, but yeah, so many people, they give up way too soon. You know, they give up, you know, I, I never ran track or track and field or anything, but like they give up after like hurdle, like 12, when if they would have just stuck in until 27 or 46 or 57, like their wildest dreams would come true. That in and, and that being they can they can they they can do what they love doing. They can do what they really want to do instead of clocking in and clocking out. And since we don't have that information, I don't have I don't know which hurdle it is that I have to jump over before X takes off and Y takes off and Z takes off. So I just gotta keep going, like day in and day out. If I really believe it, like you said, if it's something that's really like part of who I am, well, I'm just gonna keep jumping the hurdles until it happens. And it could be another five six years of making, spending more money than I'm making and somehow miraculously, I'm just not going to stop, you know? And I think, I think a lot more people should, again, whether it's like a super side thing, like a small thing, or if it's a really, really big thing, like you, you, I'm just not convinced you really want it unless you really give it a, give it a go and go at it for months or even years to make it happen. I don't know why I started on that, but totally. That's an encouraging word. I think for a lot of people, um, you're also, as I know, a big smoker of cigars, yes. a cigar fanatic. Would you label yourself? Um, I don't know what the word is. I really like cigars. Could be aficionado, could be fanatic. Um, Are you like in New York going to a cigar club type of person or like 
more so smoking on the way home. Not really. So here's the the New York culture is kind of interesting. So when we lived in Nashville, one of the bright spots of our time in Nashville was this amazing cigar bar called Smoker's Abbey, started by really good friends of mine. He still is a pastor. He's like a pastor slash entrepreneur, started this cigar bar. It became like this really like cheers like place in East Nashville where truly you walk in and everybody's high-fiving you and you know everybody and it's people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, all skin colors, all, all kinds of backgrounds, just having a good time, drinking some beers, smoking cigars. Um, so I loved that. Yes, in Nashville, I still smoked on my front porch in my backyard while I was taking a walk, but that was like, I had a place to go where I know that if I want to be around people while smoking, I have a place. Here, I don't have that because there are a few, I live in Manhattan, there are a few cigar spots here in Manhattan, but most of them are wildly expensive. And, you know, it's like they will charge you, you know, it's not like a cigar shop where you go and buy, you know, a cigar at the normal sticker price of, you know, nine, 10, 12, 13, $14 a piece. Like they're doubling that. So you're, you're spending, you know, $25 on a mediocre cigar. And then they have a two or three drink minimum which, you know, they're 17 to $20 cocktails each. So oh, yeah. you walk out of there not really having a good time. And after tip, you're $100 plus, you know. And meant most of them, if not all of them, there was one that didn't have this. There was one that is pretty historic cigar bar that shut down during the pandemic. It's been around for over 100 years and it shut down. Super tragic. But all the rest of them have some sort of a dress code. Like you can't like me in a hoodie and jeans and a hat right now could not walk in. I have to go get a button down shirt, maybe even a jacket, like a not a not a like a suit jacket. And, you know, they're expecting you to walk in uh, coming from your like financial, you know. Yeah. So just a super like classist cigar is. Yes. For Therefore, sure. which is would not be my scene at all. I wouldn't get along with no, those people. No, if I had all. all the money in the world, it's not my scene. Like I just don't want to be part of that. So I do a lot of which which coincidentally, it's two of my favorite things together. Smoking cigars and walking the streets of New York. I've been walking the streets of New York for years and years and years and years and years. And there's no city. I've been to the best cities in the world, some of them anyway. I've been all over the world. I know good cities. I know what it's like to be all over the place. And I can't get over walking the streets of New York. Like every single time it feels like magic, even when I'm getting punched in the head by a mentally ill, you know, you know, deranged, uh, unhoused person or whatever it is. Like, it's just magic. So I, every day, I try to smoke a cigar a day. It's good for my health. Don't fight yep. me on that. Love it. And yeah, I just do it. I do it walking the streets and it's just super fun. I love it. Love that. Well, do you smoke? Uh, there's so much I okay. do not. I would I'm not against it. I just had never uh I smoked a few cigars when I was like post college, but I think my problem with cigars is I've never been around like friends yeah. or colleagues who it's like it's their yep. thing and I'm I'm someone who's like I'm a novice at a lot of things. And so I want somebody who's not a novice to be like, here's where you start. Here's how to do it. Let's do it together kind of person. And because I don't have that, I'm like, I don't want to just like go to the smoke shop and be like, oh, uh, I don't even know what side to light it. And like, okay, I know you're not supposed to like inhale or something. I don't know. So cigar has not been my thing, but I 
I would be open to it. Maybe we should do another episode where it's just like cigars with Nick. Fair enough. We'll make it happen. I have this. There Love was it. like a side show that I was going to do at some point. I, I literally don't have time anymore. But it was going to be another interview show, but not related to, you know, changing the world. Like, let's give a damn. And it was just going to be like fun, like interviewing really fun people. And so but the 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 gist was the the interview goes as long as these two items go, the cigar and uh, a full bottle of whiskey. So if it's, you know, hopefully it's four of us talking or three of us, because two of us with a bottle of whiskey, we would, That's we would a be, lot. it'd be fun, but we'd be gone by the end. Um, but the whole idea is like, you just, it just go all the way to the cigar and the whiskey's gone and just have a great, about whatever, you know, whether it's religion or politics or what stuff that's happening in society and you just go, but I just don't have the time to do it. But that was a dream, like talk show that I had kind of like my version of, uh, What's the wings one? The chicken wings one with uh, Sean Evans. Have you seen that? Hot oh ones, yeah, hot yep. ones. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. hot My ones. Yeah. That. Anyway, totally. onward. Yeah, it's so funny. People who like both of us, whose podcasts are centered on like seriously changing the world and kind of like reimagining a better way forward. All of us, I think, have ideas of like I would love to just like talk about oh, movies this- or just like bullshit with other people and not be like, how are we going to change the world? Because it's like. Every conversation's heavy, and it'd be nice to just be like, what'd you think of the Batman? Yep. So, yeah, it's also a low-key dream. But anyways, there's so much more we could talk about. So maybe let's start here. I would love for you to share with us a little bit about your journey of faith. I know you've talked a little bit on social media about it and have kind of run in a couple different circles and communities over the years. So where did your faith take you maybe from like your early days until you began to go through this process of like rethinking or reimagining or, or maybe starting to reconsider what you believed uh, in your faith expression? Yes. What was that journey like for you? It'll, yeah. So I'll, by sharing my faith journey, you'll get a taste of my physical journey as well uh, because they because my faith journey was thrusted upon me you know, at birth, like I was born into a deeply uh, conservative, fundamentalist, Baptist family uh, in Rochester, New York. So I was born in upstate New York. We we lived there for a few years before we moved to Guatemala, which is where I spent most of my childhood. Um, so this was an environment that I was never, I always had questions about it. I was never okay with it. About all things in life, I constantly am asking why. I don't just take things at face value. I'm one of 12 kids, and my dad in his mid-60s now will point to his almost gray-haired head and say that I am the culprit. I am the reason for most of those gray hairs because I just would, I'd be just always asking why. Like, why? That doesn't make any sense. So you've got to tell me why. There needs to be a reason why we can't wear name-brand clothing why women have to, you know, be super modest and serve us, but the men can do whatever the hell they want. Why, you know, we can't have Christmas trees because it's a pagan holiday, da, 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 da. Like why all these things that you told me, like obviously no drinking, no smoking, no dancing, no going to the movies. Like it was a very rules heavy environment that I just never felt comfortable in because there were no, really there was no basis for it. And I recognized that even as a kid, there was a lot of like giving out the rules, you know, writing these lists after lists after lists of rules. But then when I would say, but why? Like, where does this come from? 
There was there well because the Bible said so, even though the Bible did not say so for almost right. all of those things. They would take one out of context verse, and it would then you know it would become forty rules that one out of context verse, right? So very uneasy in that environment, but that was the environment that I grew up in. Um, that continued. My parents then became missionaries. So we moved back to Guatemala, which was where my dad was born. He came to the United States as a refugee when he was a kid. And then we moved back uh, when I was when I was a kid. And it continued there. All of the missionaries and all of the churches and all the people that we hung out with were part of that camp. You know, women wear dresses and we don't listen to anything outside of like really low key church music. And again, no drinking, smoking, any of that stuff. Um, I, I, I can remember I can remember as a young teenager trying to convince my dad to let us go to, you know, the movie theater like we wanted to see a movie. Yeah, same. And he and he was same. just like, ah, that place is trouble. And I'm like, Dad, we're going to see fucking like it's a. This is like a PG movie. Like, yeah, it's like the Chronicles like, of Narnia. We seriously, still can't go. <laughs> but it was this movie. It was yeah. this dark, you know, movie theater. Then dark is evil and evil is where the devil is, blah, blah, blah. So, a couple other things that affected my faith journey. They're, they're faith related, um, but they're just about my family. Um, so, my dad is an amazing man. Um, the last 10, 12 years, he has been. He just radical changes in his life. But before that, from when I was a kid until 10 or 12 years ago, which is well after I had left the home and started my own family and, and you know, had my own career, he was very abusive. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, verbally, very abusive. Because going back to my childhood, um, a very conservative fundamentalist Baptist dude you know, shared the gospel with him, witnessed to him. And my dad was a bad dude. Like, you know, he was getting into trouble. He was a part of a gang. And this guy, you know, told him he's got to reject all that and become a Christian. And my dad did for some reason way back when. And, but when he started going to church, they did not say, hey, let's hear your story. We want to care for you. We want to love you. What's going on? You know, how can we help? The first thing they told him, he was meeting with a group of men for this like prayer meeting. And he remembers to this day them telling him, if you want to be a man of God, you've got to cut that hair because he had long hair. And the first thing they told him, not God loves you no matter who you are or what you've done. They made sure to let him know that if you want to be a good Christian man, you've got to cut your hair. So this is, the, anyway, I, so, and, and, and therefore my dad, who was a very angry, abusive person, before you know joining this <laughs> this Baptist cult, that all just continued. But now it just got now it just got masked with a suit and a tie versus you know biker gang attire and motorcycles, which is what it was before. Exactly. So all through my childhood, you know, we we witnessed this this change that would happen on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night, which was dad who we had to walk on eggshells around. And just try not to piss him off, like always anticipating his next move and what would set him off so that we could just like kind of have some peace in the home. And then then church time would come around and boom, it was we all put on our happy faces and we all did the thing. 
Yeah. Everything's great. Everything's great, Joe. Like everything's great. Yeah. And so again, I'm wrestling through this. I'm like, this is not okay. This is not okay. How is this? How is this my life? Like, how is this a real thing? Um, and, and, you know, as I'm growing up and, you know, going through puberty and going through all these changes physically and emotionally in my own life, there were no conversations about, uh, sex and sensuality and sexuality and, you know, like what, what are the changes that are coming and how you should, you know, be open and honest with us. Let us know what's going on so we can help you. Again, it was very much an environment where sex is off limits. If you do it, you, you may have just sealed your, your, your fate, you know, in, in hell you're, you're, I mean, like if you mess up, if you fuck up with that, like it's, it, it could be it, like maybe not, but maybe, you know? And so very unhealthy, very unhealthy, uh, just lots of conflicts in my emotions and in my spirituality and my physical being. Then I'm, you know, graduating from high school. I'm a mess spiritually. I don't know what's going on. I don't like anything that I've experienced growing up, but I don't know what else is out there because I was so, it's not like I had all these choices before me. Like, Hey, you want to like explore, you know, other kinds of Christianity, Catholicism or Episcopalianism, or do you, you know, if you want to become a Buddhist or a this or a that, like, those weren't even options. Therefore, I... It was the one way, the one denomination. That's, that's it. it. I thought being a fundamentalist, conservative Baptist that believed that one particular version of the Bible was it in English, which none of the writers of the Bible ever spoke or even knew was a language. But this is what they believe. And so I didn't know there was anything else out there because we were so sheltered and I couldn't go, you know, this was also... I'm, I'm dating myself, but this is like as the internet was coming onto the scene. And so we didn't have like, you know, we definitely didn't have phones where we could go like Google. Hey, I'm doubting my, I, I don't know. I, what are other religions doing? What do they believe? Like that was not even something that we could even think about. So graduate from, from high school, thinking about going to college and long story short, my dad convinced me to join this ministry group for a year, like take a break from going to college. We've heard good things about this. Um, they travel around, they sing, they, you know, help out in, in different ways at orphanages and this, and they travel the world and they like share the gospel and da, 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 da. You should do this for a year. It's like really cool. And you get to travel the world. Come on. That's great. So I, I resist it. I resist it. I resist it. Finally, I give in and I joined this group. And that is how, you know, you talked about, uh, uh, Baptist Bible college, that is how I first encountered that small college that no one's ever heard of is because this... you're literally the first person that ever has been like, oh, I totally. know that. I'm like, wait, what? I think their current enrollment is like 72 oh my kids. God. Why not just shut like down? That. Like, isn't that a, isn't that a sign? Isn't that a sign that you're done? We had we did an interview kind of critiquing Baptist Bible College about all the abuse that happens. And uh, another alumni and I, we did this episode. Dude, we got shit on so sure. much that I was just like, it was by far, far and away our most popular episode because everyone was like sharing it around. And like, my dad worked at the school. So he was like getting shit from people and everyone was like, whoa, were they trying to tear it down? And I'm yeah, like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm yeah, trying to tear are. this thing down. Like, absolutely. <laughs> Anyways. So I joined and it, it, uh, ding, ding, ding was also very conservative. 
So maybe a little looser than what I'd grown up with, but still, I mean, we are now virtually grown-ass adults. We are, you know, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. We're in the college age, and they are still policing what music we listen to. They are checking our our CD players and our, you know, iPods were just coming out of the scene, our iPods, and they were looking at, are you listening to, you know, evil music, and is that influencing your life, and, you know, quiet times every day, and devotions, and and because this this ministry traveled around to tons and tons of churches, uh, we were in church virtually every day uh, for, for months and months and months. I mean, and then multiple times on Sunday, you know, suits and ties, singing. And I did enjoy one aspect of this. I've always been, you know, fairly musically bent, and I haven't used it in the past decade or basically it coincided with starting to have kids. And here we are 10 years later. But I really enjoyed the choral part of the job, as it were. I got to sing with 20-something other people, and we got to make really beautiful music. Even if I didn't like the music, the the, the content of the music we were making, I've, I've always been a big fan of opera and choral music and classical music. I still do. It's, the, it's most of the music I listen to. And so I was really happy to be part of that. It just was all the other bullshit that I wasn't okay with. I mean, everything from the, the messages and the sermons that were preached every single night and uh, again, the rules, there were people that got caught, you know, getting handsy with each other, making out, doing this or that, right? Because you have, you throw a bunch of, I mean, you throw a bunch of horny, you know, 19 and 20 year olds together to travel together. I mean, you're seeing these people nine, 10, 12 hours a day. You're going to see some people, you know, hooking up and, you know, trying to do things. Oh, absolutely. And then you, I mean, beyond punish them. I mean, they would, it was, it was public humiliation. It oh, was shame. shaming. It was it was the it was the equivalent of like walking them through the Times Square while they're like groveling all the way to the king and just ringing a bell and throwing shit at them. Right. Like that's literally what it was. And then sending them home. Like if he was feeling gracious, they might be able to stand on the team, part of the organization. But otherwise, you, you committed the cardinal sin. You made out you made out with someone. You did this. So like you're gone. So just this again. And so here I am now a young man enjoying parts of it and hating most of it. And then I did this weird thing, which is I stayed there for five years. Let me briefly explain. It was supposed to be one year. And I've always been, uh, any setting I've ever been in as a volunteer or as, you know, as a job, I've always, for lack of a better term, risen the corporate ladder pretty quickly. I have these like natural leadership skills. I'm a very like, I'm a, I'm a very big personality, passionate, some would say uh, too loud. I say loud enough. And so like I come in and I have a plan and I'm very strategic. And so I naturally like just as one of the singers, I worked my way into a leadership position. And then they offered me the job of like, you could be the team, you can manage the whole team. And I was like, okay, that sounds like good experience and keep traveling the world. And then almost all the way through the second year, they offered me the job of team director. Now you're over the whole thing. And I was like, well, that makes sense. And then, and so I bit my, you know, bit my lip a little bit and said, okay, I'll sign on for a third year. That third year I met my now, you know, life partner who we've been together for 14 years, three kids later. So I met her and then I was like, well, she just joined. I can't leave because I want to get to know her. Right. And we ended up get, you know, getting married. So stayed a total of five years there. And then the the owner of this of this this ministry 
basically told me like, hey, I want you to like, I think I want you to take over someday, like take over this whole thing. It was a big thing. There was a summer camp and, you know, we had buses and RVs and trucks and like it was a big operation. And he was basically saying, like, I think you're the man for the job. to like take this over. He's getting he was getting old. And I'm so glad that I resisted. I mean, it's a pretty nice life, actually. Like, you raise money. People send you money. They totally. support you. And everyone's going to get, all those churches are going to give money to that, bro. You're going to be swimming in and, cash. And, like, coming, you know, with the job, I got a house. It wasn't a great house, but we got a house for free on the campus. And then we got this huge truck in a fifth wheel to travel with all year long. So then we had a house on the road and a house back in Pennsylvania. I mean, start out marriage that way. It sounded amazing. You get to travel all over the world. And we said no, um, thankfully. What was happening that last year that I was there, getting engaged, getting married, thinking about exiting, someone handed me a copy of John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. I had never heard of John Piper. A classic. classic. A I mean, classic. And, and before I... <laughs> Before I go ahead and just shit on that entire organization, because I I will and I can because I was an intimate part of it and there's a lot wrong there. Um, that book is the reason I do the work that I do today. Like the the idea behind Don't Waste Your Life is rock solid. Not for the same reasons that John Piper wrote the book, but the idea is there. Yes. The, this this verse that comes from the book of James that says your life is a vapor. You're here today and gone tomorrow. That is a sobering thought that I still think about. It it pushes me in everything that I do. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I am, again, no regrets in my past. I'm really grateful someone handed me that book. I read it cover to cover like three times in a row. Just really like this, this message of don't waste your life grabbed me and shook me. And I was like, okay, I don't know what we're going to do next. We're getting married. We have no home because she didn't want to move back to Florida where she was from. And I was never moving to Florida. Sorry. Um, well, you're not, you're not there anymore, but I'm not moving to Florida. And I grew up in Guatemala. I had no home. Um, and so I was like, where are we, we, the sky's the limit. Where do we want to go? And so we decided to move to Minneapolis, Minnesota, John Piper central, the, 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 the Mecca yep. of seven point Calvinism. And this was, is this like, Give us a year framework for this. Is this like early 2000s? Yep. So I let, yep. So uh, 2001 to 2000, sorry, 2002 to 2008, I was part of that organization in the, the, the traveling ministry team. 2008, got married. We moved to Minnesota. So we were in Minnesota. So now we're in 2008. 2008 to 2012 was the four years we spent there. That is the like, that's arguably the pinnacle of like desiring God, Bethlehem, Piperism, together for the gospel. 100%. That was like, that was the climax moment. Cause like after that, then it's like the internet and like allegations start surfacing. They kind of lose a little bit of their power. But before that, I mean, that was like deep in the, in the belly of the beast. That was when he was regarded as a God for all intents and purposes. Oh, Absolutely. The greatest mind in the world when it comes to like Calvinism. At 100%. Least. And at that point, as you're talking, as you just stated, was not just the pin, it was the pinnacle of, <laughs> it was the pinnacle of young men, primarily young women too. Yes. It was the pinnacle of young men finding Calvinism and becoming monsters over it. 
Like taking yeah. which would would you say that's your that was my experience absolutely was that your experience as I well I became ruthless I have no problem saying that I was I was the dickest of dicks like I would try to convert anybody and everybody if you gave me your ear I would try to convince you not the five points of Calvinism I was for a period less than a year I was bought into all seven points of John Piper's Calvinism because he added two. And so as a God does, right, exactly. You can make up right? your own. Like for hundreds of years, there were five. And then I'm going to add two <laughs> yeah. and everybody took it. I took it as someone who was always questioning things. That's what was so wild about that period. And I still don't have all of the answers as to why I jumped in head first, because I very much wasn't that kind of person, but I jumped in head first. So we show up in Minneapolis I enroll in the school there. So I'm going to school at Bethlehem College and Seminary. I am, I got a job at Desiring God, which was John Piper's ministry. And I was leading worship at the church. And they were talking about, I was, I was in the preliminary stage of becoming an elder. And they had told me that they were, that they wanted me to become one of their next church planters. So they, there were, there were churches that were planted directly out of Bethlehem, mostly in the twin cities area. And they would go out as like direct, it wasn't a churches, it wasn't churches that they mildly supported. It was churches that they fully supported. And there was, there were talks about Nick, you've got what it takes to do that. So I was in which if you have any aptitude whatsoever of leadership, if you can communicate at all, what people are really looking for is just loyalty. Yeah. Like, are you just going to like reciprocate what we're doing? And you're like, yeah, this is like the dream. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that was my exact experience. As we've talked about this in Vancouver, we did the same thing. Like we went to the Mecca of Canadian version of Desiring God. Yeah. Desiring God actually did a conference at our church that was Wait, like. Wait, so you were at? Uh, I know what I know what church this is. This is yeah, Westside. Westside. I know this church. I've been there yeah. before. Yeah, dude, this is crazy. This is blowing my mind. The I, connections. I, yeah, so I was, I was at Westside for four years. Mech, like when I got there, it was like, I mean, we the Mennonite Brethren Conference technically owned the building, but it was our building. So anything to do with like faith in Canada, if it was like west of Toronto, it was held at Westside because our church was like Massive. one of the biggest venues in Vancouver. Yeah. Like we have this theater. So yeah, we had like, dude, a look at the book conference. We had like Chan come into this stuff. We had like Tim Keller was there at one point, like heavy hitters in white evangelicalism. And we became kind of this like West Coast hub because outside of Driscoll and Seattle, the Northwest didn't really have too much of a like a reformed hold outside of Mars yeah. Hill, which was its own monster. But crazy yeah. and, that like Desiring God was like all up. And in I there. think in a few minutes when I get to post Minneapolis, I think there'll be another connection. But I'll wait till then. I, I don't want to jump ahead. I think there'll be another connection to uh, West Side and that whole thing up there. Um, yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So you guys were hosting stuff. Um, I helped put during that 2008 to 2012 period I hosted, uh, so most of my job at Desiring God was putting on 
events, the conferences. And so a lot of those conferences, maybe I, I don't know if I went to it, but I, 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 I definitely did, uh, you know, produce a lot of those smaller events, plus the big yearly pastors conference, plus the big national conference. I did all of that for years while I was there. Right before we did that whole, that whole tangent there, um, you, you talked about they're looking for loyalty and you're so right. And for about one year of those four years, I gave them that unfettered loyalty, like whatever you guys want. It didn't last very long. It lasted longer than it should have. But for one year, I kind of, I kind of let my why dad, why dad, why dad down where I would always question things. And I just went along with it for about a year. And I had to, to, to fit in and to really like move forward to this, in this environment, you had to be all in. I mean, don't ask questions and yes. just go for it. Like you, you have the high priest, John. Unbrittled loyalty. 100%. At 100%. all costs. So again, that lasted. So we were in Minneapolis for four years, about a year before leaving Minneapolis. No, a year and a half before leaving Minneapolis. So two and a half years in, we were feeling very like, okay, well, A, we were burnt out. They were wearing us out. They, I mean, we were doing so much. They were not caring for us. It was just all in. And, and, and that's on us too for taking it, but we did take it because we thought it was the right thing to do. So two and a half years in, we're really feeling burnt out. And we're sort of like one of the questions that me and a bunch of other people that I had really grown, grown close to there, we're looking at, we're looking at this building here, this Mecca of John Piper and Calvinism and the doors are open. I mean, the building is open every single day for hours and hours and hours. And there are classes, you know, Bible study classes, Hebrew classes, Greek classes, how to study this, how to do that. Like all these people are coming in. They're filling their fucking heads with just knowledge, tons and tons of knowledge. And I didn't see, this is where the, this is where the rub started. This is where I stopped being loyal in every way is I didn't see much happening outside of these four walls, lots of walls, but you understand, like I didn't see much happening outside this building. We weren't making disciples. The city of Minneapolis was no better for us being inside of it. And so I'm sitting here thinking, well, this is, you know, if, if all of these classes and these hour plus long sermons and all of these gatherings, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, if all these things were actually producing something substantial where we were actually seeing change around us, then I might be able to go along with it. But I'm not seeing anything. Uh, I'm seeing no, to use the very Christian terminology, I'm seeing no disciples made outside of these four walls. And so we started to question things and we tried to work with the elders there. We had meetings and they even got, they even went as far as letting us start our own gathering. So we started, there, there was no Sunday night gathering uh, at the church. There was a big Sunday morning thing and there was nothing Sunday night. So we said, hey, we're going to get a lot of the, that was our first go at like, well, maybe let's get all the young people, the young, like vibrant people that want to do something different. And we asked them and uh, we were so taken back that they agreed to let us do this Sunday night gathering right there at the church. And so we started this thing, you know, we could do a lot of things differently. We could say things differently. We could talk more about loving your neighbor and doing these things and going out and not spending so much time in this building. Even then there was a rub because the one thing they said we had to do was we still had to, for the sermon portion of that service, we still had to show the video 
of that morning's sermon, which was 95% of the time, John Piper. So we, yeah. And also 95 and minutes. And also forever long. So um, <laughs> unpacking two verses in Romans. Two words in Romans. I mean, just my, when I, when I think back on how many hundreds, thousands of hours I listened to those sermons, I can, I can never get that time back. Okay, I'll speed things up. So eventually we got just really burnt out. I'm still I'm still bought into Calvinism at the time. I'm still bought into, you know, uh, many are called, few are chosen. You know, few of you are getting in. The rest of you, I'm so sorry, but God doesn't love you like he said that he did. He just doesn't love you uh, because you decided not to love him back. I mean, what a what a God. Um, and... So, so I'm still bought into that, but not as intensely. And I was just done with this whole thing. So we left. Desiring God fired me because I, you know, before we turned record on, um, asking questions and getting fired because I'm asking all the questions they don't want me to ask. Um, they have a whole different reason on paper for why they did it, but I got fired for pushing the envelope. That's what I got fired for. If they, if, if today they tried to give me some other bullshit reason, I would still say, please like, just be honest for once. 10 years later, you fired me because I wasn't going along with your program. I was an excellent worker. I did everything you asked me above and beyond. You fired me because I, because I didn't go along with your program. You rocked the boat, rocked the boat. So got fired from desiring God. This is all within a couple months period. Got fired from desiring God. We finally quit that Sunday night gathering that we were doing. We we're like, this is stupid. And then we left it totally burnt out. And I had already quit school. So I quit school because that's a whole different thing. Um, just to, it was not a healthy environment. I could see that. And I just didn't want to be a part of it. So quit the school, got fired from uh, Desiring God and quit the church. And we were still in this mindset that you had to be part of a church. Like now I would never do that. But we were like, we can't not go to church, but we have to go to something way healthier, right? Which I think, just to pause you, I think that's a lot of people's perspective. They're they're leaving this abusive, manipulative, toxic version of church. And because of the way that they're taught about community and faith and pastoral leadership and, you know, the Pauline epistles of overseers and whatever, they have this framework that if you're existing in an unhealthy church space, the only other option for you is to try to find else. a healthier yep. church yep. space. So I just want to name that for myself and for anyone listening, that if you are currently there, that's a very real experience. And one that every single one of us who have kind of been on similar journeys, we go through that stage of, even if we're not there anymore, we go through the stage of, the only solution to a bad church is a less bad church somewhere. So I just wanted to name that before you keep going, that that's like, it's a very real experience that's valid and is part of a lot of people's journeys. No church is an option. Even if it's for a few months or a year or two or forever, I would say, even though I still, and I'll, I'll get to present day, I am still very committed to church for some reason that some days I don't even understand. No church is an option. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. So yes, great, great uh, call out there. Midpoint in the sermon, 
you're going to be, be okay. You're going to be okay. So during that last year there, um, so what's funny is I got fired from Desiring God and then they hired me back as a contractor to help them put on their conferences in that year before we left Minneapolis. So, so weird. And they ended up paying. <laughs> Classic. We're firing you, but also we, we need we, you because you're such an excellent we employee. We need you. Um, we need you. And so during that last year where we, we, okay, so we did join up with a small, and it actually was a really great experience. They didn't ask anything from us. They let us not do anything. A very small church in the middle of a neighborhood, you know, the kind of church where they have cough in the Twin, in the Twin Cities. Cities. So this, it's a small church, the kind where there are so few people that they're able to use like real coffee cups. They put, they have a table out with like a hundred ceramic mugs because it's all there's the people there, like 50 to a hundred people. Oh man, it was so great. And probably those kind of communities all around the Twin Cities are just constantly picking up dead bodies from Bethlehem. 50% of their church is made up of almost dead, limping, uh, 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 yeah, uh, uh, collateral That's always the damage. narrative. Twin Cities, Oh, uh, Seattle. Seattle, Tacoma yep. area. It's just like there's just dead bodies everywhere. These like mega churches and these poor pastors who are trying to do the work of like shepherding and caring for the community are just like it's the same story over and over again. And now they're having to do the actual pastoral work of helping these people after they've been chewed up and spit out by these, you know, capitalistic machines of. Anyways, that's a that's probably another topic, but it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So during that year where we were trying to detox and trying to recover and trying not to hate everything around us, you know, we have at that point we have one small child, and we're again we're just trying to physically, emotionally, spiritually recover from what we now see as very clear abuse that was happening to us. Um, so I'm working this conference, this Desiring God conference, still now as a contractor. And I meet this guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. He comes to the church. He comes to the conference to speak. And Jeff was yep. like nobody else that I had heard up to that point. Because sure, he was at this conference, but he was way different. He wasn't talking about having more gatherings and more conferences and more this. He had this whole, his theology led him to go out in the streets and, you know, the way they said it was like, be the church. Like, don't do church, be the church. Go out there and like throw parties, throw keggers, like bring people into your home and just love on them, right? And so I was really attracted to that. And I was also, during that year, because I didn't have, a, I didn't have, I, I had left Desiring God or was fired rather. So I got a job in, uh, in corporate America for nine months, the longest nine months of my life. I hated every moment of it, but I got a job at a really great company uh, with, through a friend of mine. And so all this is happening, and, but, I, but I don't have a job that I really want. And so I'm really attracted to Jeff. I'm really like, okay, what you're doing in Seattle and Tacoma sounds amazing. It sounds right up our alley. I, we don't have any ties to Minneapolis now. So I called, I called him up one day and I said, Jeff, I'm cutting out a few details here, but basically I get to the point where I call him up and say, Jeff, um, I've looked at all your content for their organization was called Soma, is called Soma, and which means body in Greek. And so I said, your website sucks, your videos suck, everything you do sucks from a media standpoint. Hire me to come in and be your communications director. I have, I know that's not a position you're hiring for, but I literally gave him a job description and said, hire me to do this. 
This is how I function. I'm just like, I, I, I want this yep. job. That's literally exactly how I got the job at Westside in yeah. Vancouver. I said, you don't have anybody doing this. You don't have anybody doing youth ministry. I am very good at youth ministry. Hire me to come plant this youth ministry. And they were like, sounds good Amazing. to me. So I was yeah. like, sick. Guess I'm moving to yep. Canada. So I, I said, he said, hey, I'll, uh, this sounds great. I believe you. I can see our stuff. I know we need help. And so he's went and talked with the board and came back and said, you're, you're hired. Here's what we can pay you. And it was, it was, uh, it, I still, no, I, at that season of life, I'm not going to shit on the amount. It was, I'm grateful for what they paid me. It actually was way above. It was almost double. I will shit on desiring God. They paid terribly. It was double, uh, what desiring God was paying me. Um, and so was very glad for that. So we, and they paid, I mean, they, they paid for me to move out to one of their guys flew to Minneapolis to help me load up my truck and drove out there with me. Like, it just felt like a new beginning. It felt so like, yeah. Oh my God, I found my people. So we move out to, we move out to Tacoma, Washington. Uh, I'd been there before, but like twice. And it was when I was younger, my wife had never been there. Uh, we're known in our family for moving places without ever going there before or without knowing much about it. My wife has New York City was the first place we've moved as a family where she had actually visited before. She's been in New York quite a few times. When we moved to Minneapolis, she had never been there before. When we moved to Tacoma, she had never been there before. When we moved to Nashville, she had never been there before. Like, we're just like very like, let this risk takers, man. So we moved to Tacoma, didn't know anybody. Um, and the four years there, so we spent four years there, four years in Minneapolis, four years Tacoma, four years in Nashville. Now we're in New York. So four years is also kind of a thing for us. Hopefully it's 44 years here in New York. Um, yeah. But uh, so we moved there feeling very refreshed, very ready to go. So jump into this thing. There were a few hiccups at the at the beginning. They told me after I had moved that like they had a budget problem and could only pay me half the money. So I had to find half a job. And so that was a rocky start. I went on a music tour. I, I, I uh, uh, managed a music tour for a while and did all this stuff to try to make it work. And then they finally were able to pay me full time. So I'm going to summarize the four years there and tr try to in a minute for the sake of time, because we still have a little bit to get through. And that is, I love Jeff. I love our time out there. I have, I have bitterness toward the Minneapolis Desiring God Bethlehem episode of my life. I don't have very much bitterness for the four years in, in Tacoma, even though I think we were sold a false bill of goods. And the false bill of goods was everything's easier here because we're not trying to do all this stuff. We're just trying to like take it easy and invite people into our lives and this and that and the other. But practically speaking, that didn't work out very well. And I'm not blaming around the time that we showed up was also a time that that Soma was really taking off, really gaining traction. Soma became the, the epicenter of missional communities. If, 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 if Minneapolis and John Piper was the epicenter of Calvinism, then Soma was the epicenter of how to do quote unquote life on life and how to do like, like how to get Jesus in the Jesus everyday, in the everyday stuff, stuff of life. life. Yep. Said that and heard that a million times. And so they were, so all this attention on Jeff. And again, I kind of rose in leadership there and became, you know, one of Jeff's right-hand men and did all the stuff and put on all these events and led all these things and put on all these things, these gatherings and conferences. And what I found though, is it wasn't easy. Here's why as it gained traction. So I, I showed up thinking 
okay, they're not, they don't put a ton of energy on the Sunday gathering. So they're not going to be like looking for a million volunteers to do a million different things. And they're letting people like go out there and again, be the church. Well, this thing's growing and there's a lot of attention on it. So now we are doing all this stuff. We're doing missional community and these little small, these little two to four person, you know, accountability groups. And you're going out there and you're making disciples throughout the week. And you're, you're, you're trying to bring people in, into your home and into your life while putting on these Sunday gatherings, which were pretty intense because there wasn't an organ, there wasn't a really good solid organizational structure. And so when you're not organized and when you don't have good people leading this effort, even if it wasn't a ton, ton of work, it became a ton of work because no one was really leading it well. So, you know, year two, year three, I'm starting to see so many burnt out people. And one of the changes that was happening when I arrived, I was like, oh, I'm really into the fact that they're not focusing just on this one, this one God, this one, you know, person, and then everything goes, you know, from them, like in, in the John Piper world. Here, it's very distributed and very like everybody gets to do everything. But two, three years in, I was like, this doesn't look healthy. Now you're having people out there doing, you're having just regular everyday people that don't have training, that are overworked. They've got, you know, two, three kids. They've got student loans, maybe a job, maybe a job, maybe two. They are, they are just trying to stay alive, just trying to stay afloat. And you're asking them to go because it's distributed and because it's this thing where you got to, now you've got people that are doing marriage counseling. They're doing, they're doing therapy level counseling. They're baptizing people. They're leading these, these missional communities, which were essentially little mini churches. So you're asking these people that are not trained, not equipped, not even, they don't even have the time or the attention span to do it. You're saying, hey, go lead your little church of 15 to 20 people. And so I just started to see people get burnt out left and right. And I was like, okay, this isn't healthy. What have we gotten ourselves into? So at the end of my, our four years there, I started, that is when I started to, to use the term that is used quite commonly now. And I think appropriately, um, I started deconstructing. It was at that point that I hit a wall and said, I'm done, not done with Jesus or Christianity yet, but I am done with this. I'm done with this. I need to take this house that I've built down to the studs and see what I put back onto this house. If I even, maybe I get down to the studs and I'm like, you know what? I'm done with this project. I'm going to go rent a house down the street. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go yep. rent a house down the street. Yep. So I started and I started, uh, my wife and I are voracious readers and I had, we had thousands and thousands of books and I, because of me and my inclinations and my training, I mean, just tons of theology books. I mean, everybody, the Kellers and the Sprouls and the Pipers and the, all the com all the present day ones. And then all the Puritans, all the Thomas Edwards, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards and the, and the, all of these, I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of authors again, mostly around reformed theology that, that were pushing this idea of Calvinism. And I started just literally taking a book, one book off the shelf and saying, nope, nope. I mean, I did this hundreds of times over. And when I got done with that process, cause we were moving at that point, we were, we, we, had, we were leaving Tacoma and we were going to move closer to family, um, which is why we moved to Nashville. We didn't want to be in Nashville, but it was closer to family. 
So, you know, the move kind of spurred me on to like take the books off the shelf physically and say, does this stay or does this go? Well, I ended up with like 150 books out of thousands. And of the theology, most of them weren't theology anymore. I had kept a lot of like history and philosophy and, you know, different things like that, business books and whatever. And the, the couple dozen theology books that I kept, they were all mostly Catholics. And if they weren't Catholics, they were Episcopalians. And if they weren't Episcopalians, they were Anglicans. And if they weren't Anglicans, they were not Christian at all. They were other, other religions. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I got rid of, it was an easy choice to get rid of everything except these. So we moved to Nashville. I am deconstructing verbally. I'm doing it to myself. I'm talking with people, but I'm also doing a lot of it in my brain and in my heart. I'm just like going through all the things that I think that I believe from, you know, present day life to the afterlife to how God saves. What that, what the fuck does that even mean? Um, all the, all the finer points of theology that I had labored over for years, I was just picking them apart piece by piece, like a Lego, like dismantling this huge Lego. There's thousands of pieces just going at it one piece at a time. So around that time, we're moving to Nashville. I was like, I don't even know if I want to go to church. We're going to the we're going to the Bible or sorry, we're going to the, the, the buckle of the Bible belt. I don't know if I want to even try church out here. And a friend of mine that is not a Christian introduced me to a friend of his in Nashville and said, you've got to meet my friend. We met when I lived in San Francisco. I'm in, I'm in Tacoma now. She's in, in Nashville. You got to meet her. So we went out and had coffee and she and her husband were part of this super small, tiny, uh, Anglican parish. And I was attracted to the super small, tiny. I was like, okay, if I'm even thinking about anything, I'm not looking for church, but if I am, it's going to be something so small and unassuming, and there's not going to be a celebrity pastor there. That was a, that was a given. She said, you've got to meet my priest. Uh, Father Danny Bryant is amazing, and you just got to meet him. He's humble, and he's unassuming, and you're just going to love him. We all love him. So I was like, fine, I'll show up. So I went to Mass one day. And I remember this still to this day. This is now five and a half years ago. I remember feeling peace on my skin. Like I felt, like physically felt calm and rest and peace. Like I felt heavier, like I wanted to take a nap as soon as I walked in, not in a bad way. And like a just, oh my God, this place is so peaceful. I've never felt this in a church building before. So I was like, okay, this is weird. So we go through the whole thing. It was very nice from what I remember. It was very like this coming from the worlds that I had come from. Uh, the sermon was like 16 minutes long as it is in, you know, Catholic and Episcopalian and Anglican. You know, the homily was, yeah, 15, 17 minutes long. I was like, okay, I can, I can dig that. Um, so I go to meet him after and I say, hey, um, Jenny Lee told me to, you know, come my first time we're moving to Nashville. I'd love to, they, 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 they think the world of you. I'd love to talk with you more. And I'd come from a world where the pastors are so busy doing so many different things. Therefore, um, you know, usually the answer is sure. I'll have my secretary like reach out to you. And then the secretary reaches out, the assistant reaches out and it's like two, three weeks till we can get you on the calendar. Cause this man of God is so, 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 fucking busy doing God's work. Well, this priest looks at me and says, what are you doing tomorrow morning? 
And I like I remember like choking up like right in front of him. I'm this guy I don't even know. There's five people waiting to say hi to him right here in this line. And I was just like, what did you just say? Like, I am a total stranger to you. And you said, what about tomorrow morning? So we meet for coffee the next morning. I mean, just so tender. Again, just unassuming, not trying to take over the world, not trying to, to start the biggest church in the world. Like he seemed genuinely content with this 75 person little like church body. So that began a four year, no, that began till present day, four years in Nashville. But Father Danny Bryant is one of my best friends. We have worked through so many, I have helped him. We just relied on each other in so many ways and I love him and he's, he's helped me and I've helped him come along in some very vital theological changes that needed to happen in that parish. Um, you know, with, with, uh, LGBTQ things and just different things that were happening that he wanted to happen. He wanted to make happen, but, but it's also, again, he's not that kind of person that's going to like ram something through. So how do we get people on board with this and really help think through a lot of things. And that kind of leads to through those four years, I didn't have any pressure to be anything other than just there. Yes, I helped out. Yes, I read scripture. I did this, I did this and I did that and I helped out in the nursery. But there was never one of the cool things about being a part of this parish while we were in Nashville. It was one of the only great things about being in Nashville was they never spoke about money except to say, we don't need all your money. Whatever money you've set aside out of whatever money you make to give away don't you dare give all of it to us. Your city needs that. Your neighbors need that. Your friends need that. Yes, we need it. Yes, we need to have the lights on. Yes, we have a very small staff to take care of. Mm. But wow. we don't want all your money. So don't give it all to us. That's the only time I heard them talk about money, which was a huge change from, you know, all these building campaigns and we're raising money for this and we got to hire somebody else to do this new thing that we just invented. So now we need, now we need to come up with a, another hundred thousand dollars in the budget and yada, yada, yada. It was totally different. So the, and so current day, let me just give a quick overview of current day. I am now, we are, I am now a, I don't know. I don't know what I am. That's the, that's the best, that's the best thing about right now. Like I said, like I said, sometime in the conversation, I'm still, I still like to attend church. Most of the time I feel most comfortable at uh mass in a very beautiful Catholic church building. That is where I feel most comfortable. Luckily I live in Manhattan and they are everywhere. So I can pop into mass any day I want and it's beautiful. And that's where I get connection now. We also do have a church that we uh, attend sometimes on Sunday. They are great friends of ours in Chelsea here in Manhattan called Good Shepherd. They are a, they are they are a an incredible team of people that uh, very LGBTQ affirming, very open to all sorts of ideas. Not preach. I mean the the the, the everything about that church is not telling people who they should be, what they should believe, and how they should live. It's very much about like, we live in this amazing city, so go love this amazing city and, you know, and, and try to figure out how God is a part of it. And, you know, if, if you can, and that's really it, that's all I've sensed from there. I'll wrap up there. If you have any like questions, you know, particular things you want to dive into for, you know, a few minutes, I, I, I could give particular 
like I could name where I'm at on a lot of different beliefs now, which is very like, yeah. it's, 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 I'm just a few years ago, I would look at current day myself and say, you're a, You'd be horrified, horrified, heretic. Yeah. Same. Oh, heretic. Absolutely. And yet I feel the most free that I've ever felt in my life. It's the best feeling ever. Yeah. And I, I get that a lot too, just personally, cause I, I have kind of taken the stance of, I almost play a little bit of like the theological jester in some of the spaces that I'm in, in that I will push the boundary of beyond maybe even where I am for the sake of helping people yes. understand that you can't just like corner or peg people into believing one thing or another, like everything from like creeds or these theological doctrines or this and that, like those are all beautiful and wonderful, but orthodoxy does not equal orthopraxy. Yeah. And if you're not living a life of like love and justice and generosity and liberation in the spaces that you're in, then I actually have no interest in your theology because it's not actually making the world a, a better place, which is what I appreciate so much about Let's Give a Damn, which I would love to kind of end the conversation by just having you talk a little bit about that project and how you got into that. What is, uh, you know, kind of your vision for that and uh, what has that journey kind of been like from kind of these spaces of evangelicalism and post-evangelicalism or whatever, you know, faith and and trying to change the world is centered on, is always going to be a gospel-centered conversation. Yep. Like that's the only thing that we can do is like bring Jesus into the conversation. And the work that you're doing at Let's Give a Damn is still very centered on making the world a better place and being like damn givers who like are building better tables and tearing down walls and like trying to make the world a better place. But it's not like a, it's not like a religious enterprise. No. And so I'd love for you to just share a little bit about that project, how you got into that. And then maybe like uh, your perspective on our listeners of like giving a damn and what that looks like, not in the quote unquote faith world. Yeah. L let me start with the, the second question before I get into practically what let's give a damn is, because I think that's important. People talk about, people talk to me about this all the time. They don't understand how I can hold these things in tension and how I can have the conversations or how I can now believe the things that I believe and not like they doubt that I have faith because of the, the infrequency of the times that I mention the fact that I don't have, I have zero interest in evangelizing. I have zero interest in converting anybody. Here's why. So the reason that I can live the way that I live, still have this faith and still have all these conversations. And, and it, the, the reason it hasn't, even remotely become a religious enterprise is because one of the best things that's ever happened to me, and this is a total pendulum swing from my Calvinistic days, is I am a hardcore universalist now. Like I am hard, I mean, I mean, hardcore to the point where it hurts to believe how much I believe that everybody gets in because I also believe that Donald Trump gets in and Jeffrey Epstein gets in and Harvey Weinstein gets in. And the worst of the worst and the best of the best. I don't know if it takes, I don't, I don't know how God does it. I don't know if it's, if it's reincarnation or if it's the, the purgatory. I don't know how I'm not concerned with it, but the only way that I can go through the rest of my life, which I hope I will and believe in God, God, who is love is if this God gets everybody in the end, 
Yeah. Like eventually, eventually. actually renews all things, all including things, people. Right? Yeah. And so as a universalist and, and one that is not even a thousand percent convinced that that like I'm I'm not interested in even pushing the Christian God because I have one of the one of the things that happened in the early days. Of Let's give a damn is I'm seeing I start bringing in, you know, guests that are Muslim and guests that are Baha'i and guests that are Buddhist and guests that have no faith at all. You know, whether they're agnostic or atheist or on some, you know, somewhere on that spectrum. And I'm like, you are very you're a very good person. You're better than all the Christians I know. And so I'm not I have zero interest in telling my you know, Muslim friends or my Baha'i friends or any of my other friends that your that your your way is not the way. I have no business telling them that because they are getting it done and they are really good people that are doing really good things. And why are they doing it? Because because God told them to, right? And so as I have opened up, as my theology has widened, I've be, I have become a much better person. I have also law, I don't have any need to go out and evangelize. I'm just here doing the best that I can. And if somebody wants to know what's pushing me, I'll tell them. What inspires you, I'll tell them. And a lot of that answer will be things that where, where God will come up. Um, so that is how I've been able to do it is because I don't think, like, I don't think I would be able to do this if I if I wasn't a universalist, because I would constantly be trying to fit that in. I'll be constantly trying to bring people in where it's like, okay, yes, I'm I'm very broad and I'm having all these conversations, but ultimately I want you to become a Christian. I don't want people to look at Christians today. They're a fucking disaster. Like, I don't want you to join this unless you're really convinced that you want to. So that's how I've been able to do it. It's just like broaden the message and broaden the scope. Briefly how it happened. I left Soma in 2015, $20,000 in the bank, which is not a lot with three kids, moving to Nashville. And I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't want to go back into nonprofit. And so with what little money I had, I was like, hey, I like to ask questions. I like to talk with people. I like to get to know people. I'm going to start this podcast. So, um, you know, at the time I was still looking for jobs and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Then I was like, no, I don't want to work for anybody right now. I'm just going to work for myself. And so I, um, yeah, I started the podcast and I, uh, here we are, you know, 230, I don't know, something episodes later as it's developed, as it has grown, I have, it has turned into, it has turned into something. It's still not this big, enormous thing, but it has turned into something way more than I could have ever imagined. I, I do believe that let's give a damn will be something that I am part of for the next, for the rest of my life because of how it's taking shape. It's not just a podcast anymore. We are currently making a TV show. We're pitching a TV show and it's gaining a lot of traction. Some really amazing, incredible people that I never deserved to be in the same room as are jumping on board and wanting to see this across the fitness line. So we're having big meetings now about a TV show. I'm writing a book. We are, uh, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months, we are starting a film festival. We are, I'm, I'm starting a production company to make more content outside of Let's Give a Damn that is not directly Let's Give a Damn related. Um, we are, uh, there's just a, there's, it's, it's, I think it'll end up being like 15 or 20 different projects. I, I, I would, I would bore you listing out all the ways that, and, and right, actually the most current thing is that next month we're launching the Let's Give a Damn Foundation. So we are starting a nonprofit arm that we're going to channel just a ton of our energy and money through this organization to keep doing good work and partnering with good people. And so it's been 
a ton of fun. And I can't believe that I get to do it. And I can't believe that the people that want to help me do these things. And um, yeah, does that answer your question? That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's, you know, just as kind of we come to a close here, I think for so many people, I think specifically our listeners too, I think your your story, your journey is going to be so helpful because I think people are in different spots sure. of your story. And if if they're regular listeners, they kind of know my story and Nicole's story and how we got to where we are. But I think one thing that I I just want people to hear kind of coming off of what you said is just the the generosity that you give yourself to be who you are mm. in the stage that you find yourself yep. in. Like I think so often we can we can try to pivot or point ourselves into these pockets of people that we need to be. And I think it happens for both sides. Like it's it's the people who have totally left faith, don't want anything to do with faith, but they feel guilty that they're not going to church or they're not reading their Bible or whatever. Or it's people who see people totally leave and are like, actually, this still kind of is a tool that gives me a lot of value and inspires me in some ways. And I feel guilty that I still mm. find myself wanting to engage in prayer or really finding value in spending time reading scripture. And just wherever you are, I mean, that's the whole vision behind our podcast. It's just wherever you are on the journey of faith, whether that's no faith, whether you're super committed, whether you're deconstructing, or you still even feel stuck in a lot of ways, like it's just, it's okay. And I think your story will be encouraging for so many people just to see that you have gone through a lot of shit. You've gone through a lot of trauma, a lot of heartache, and a lot of things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. But those things shaped who you are today. And But it was all part of the journey. And I think that's just a, a really encouraging thing, thing for people to like grasp. It's just like wherever they're at in the journey, like it's okay. Ramdas said, we're all just walking each other home. It's one of my favorite. I love Ramdas. I read longer, longer passages and shorter snippets almost every day because his words just speak to me. And I'll never forget the first time that I read, we're all just walking each other home. That's it. That's it. That's what we're doing. I'm not even entirely sure what home looks like but we're all going there. We're all going through shit. We have victorious days and we have really bad days. And so I love what you said. I love that you're encouraging people to be okay with where you are. If you want to be part of this organized religion thing, fantastic. Beware. It's great. And it's horrible. If you don't, yes. you're okay. My what I, like I said, I love to go to mass and I love being in that space where it's quiet and, you know, saying the prayers and standing up and sitting down and bowing and crossing myself. Like all those physical actions really help me like engage. My wife doesn't want to go to church. She rarely, she rarely wants to go. And, you know, have I ever told her, well, babe, I think you need to go. No, I, okay, don't go. And if you ever want to go, let me know. And you can come along even with my kids, even with my kids. Man, I again, I, I started out by saying my father's religion was thrust upon me. I was forced into it. I will not do that to my kids. I will not do that to my kids. If they want to go and if they want to partake, fantastic. 
am I am I gonna convince them that that's the that's the only place they can find community and good things happening? No way. I'm not gonna tell them that. I'm not gonna show them that. So some days they go with me. Some days they don't. And every once in a while, I don't want to go. And all of those scenarios that I just painted are 100% okay. Why? Because no matter where we are, we're all just walking each other home. Yeah. Well, I love that. I think that is a great place to end. And I'm so thankful for you in this conversation. I feel like I was watching my own story unfold in various ways, which is always strange for me because I feel a unique sense sometimes of loneliness of my story of just like kind of what I've been through. And so to be able to connect with you and kind of what you're doing is so encouraging for me. And for listeners who want to stay up to date on what you're doing, what are some of the best ways for them to support you? Let's give a damn these kind of projects that are unfolding. Um, How can our listeners stay connected with you? Thank you for asking. I am at Nick LaPara on all social media platforms. We are let's at let's give a damn on all social media platforms. Both of those corresponding websites are also there. Nicklapara.com, let's give a damn.com. If you're looking for a way to get involved, just keep an eye out for the Let's Give a Damn Foundation, which launches here in a few weeks. We have an incredible board that I've built around this that are going to help advise. Basically, what we're going to do is when shit hits the fan, we show up. And so we are going to invite people to become monthly donors. And we are going to use all the money that we get. And I'm going to do a lot of like higher level fundraising. And we're going to use this money to, to, uh, as a, as a means of reparations to help people of color and not just black and brown, but all people of color that have been marginalized with their projects, whether it's a, whether it's a one-time social good project or their nonprofit or their, we're going to basically be a, you're going to, you're going to join the let's give a damn, uh, family as a, as a donor for this, it could be one time as well, but it's going to be so, I think, incredible to see what we can do together, how many projects we can fund. And we're going to keep track of all the progress we're making and what we're able to do with those monies. And so that is an exciting thing that's coming, coming. But I think the best way is just like on social media, just like hanging out there right now and seeing what's coming. Because again, the, the film festival coming next year and the TV show, there'll be news on that soon. And there's just a lot happening and we would love for you to join us as we clumsily move along in this absolutely damn giving journey. Man, I love that. Well, be sure to support the work that Nick is doing. Subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, help the world become a better place. Be sure to check all of that out. I'll give links in the show notes below. If this is your first time listening, this podcast is hosted by me and my wife, Nicole. We are bivocational pastors and leaders, and we keep this podcast sponsor and ad-free as an act of justice. So if you're able to become a Patreon member and support the work we're doing, we'd love to invite you to do so by visiting our Patreon page below. This episode was written, produced, and edited by us, Joseph and Nicole. Grace and peace to all of you. We love you, and we'll see you next time.